This morning we are continuing through this series of messages that I am doing through the season of Lent, looking at the miracles of Jesus. In particular, we are looking at seven of them. And the seven miracles that we are looking at are seven miracles that just so happen to show up in the Gospel of John. And it just so happens that the Gospel of John only contains seven miracles. So there is a logical progression to why John chooses the seven miracles he does and how John wants us to see that all pointing somewhere. So before we get through that, just just a little recap of how that sets up so that when we read this passage, you know then something of understanding how John arranges this for us to see. We noted last week that John divides his gospel roughly in half. There's 21 chapters there. The first 11 chapters of John cover about a three-year period in the life and ministry of Jesus. The places he went and the disciples he called and the things that he did, the things that he taught. All of that in the first 11 chapters of John. Chapter 12 and forward, the second half of the gospel, mostly focuses on one week in the life of Jesus from Palm Sunday to Easter. We noted that last time because what we noted about that is so much of what you see in the first half of John points to that one week in the second half. So we interpret and understand all these events that we're reading in John is all pointing forward to something. It's all pointing forward to that week between Palm Sunday and Easter. The time that we're in now, the season of Lent, when we look forward to that time of Easter, that we consider how John points us in that direction as well through this. So that's how we're doing that. Now, I started last week with the first miracle of Jesus, where Jesus was at a wedding banquet, and he turns water into wine in the small mountain village of Cana. Today, we're jumping to the second miracle that happens, and this comes at the end of chapter 4. So we began last week at the beginning of chapter 2. Now we're going to the end of chapter 4. Before I read that, Let me quickly go over the events that go in between there, because a lot happens between these two things. So we'll kind of jump through that. So right after what we saw last week, the the water that turns into wine, Jesus is, is at this wedding celebration. Right after that, John goes through the rest of chapter two to talk about how Jesus, at the time of Passover, travels to Jerusalem. So he is gathered with so many Israelites in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And the only story that John shares about that time is when Jesus goes into the temple courts and he drives out all of the the cheating vendors who are there trying to make a profit by selling animals for sacrifice and doing it. That's the only story John gives us about what happens while Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. We know there's more to it than that because... There are other signs and miracles that Jesus is doing, gaining a following there, but we're not exactly sure what those are because John doesn't give us the details. All right? Then in chapter 3, Jesus has a one-on-one conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Just a back-and-forth teaching with one of the teachers of the law there. And it's here in John chapter 3 where Jesus says those words which are probably the most known and recognized words of the entire Bible, right? John three sixteen, 
When Jesus is talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus is when Jesus says those words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Right? That's all in John chapter 3, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. From there, John takes the story and he takes it off of Jesus for a moment. Now John shifts our attention to John the Baptist, who's also in the region around Jerusalem. Remember, it was John the Baptist who first baptized Jesus when his ministry began. John the Baptist has his own following of, of disciples who come to him. So in, at the end of chapter 3 of John, John the Baptist is, is being approached by his followers and saying, Hey, hey, you remember that Jesus guy who you baptized a while ago? He's getting a lot more followers than we have here. He's becoming a lot more popular than you've ever been. And John the Baptist replies by saying, yes, that is necessarily so. It has to be that way. John the Baptist says, I must become lesser so that he may become greater. So we read that story about how Jesus is gaining a following. People are starting to come to him. People are starting to believe in him. From there, in chapter 4, Jesus begins to travel back to his home. Remember this layout, if, if you're not familiar with how the land of Israel works, that Jerusalem and where they were gathered and worshiping for Passover, that's all down in the south end, so down in that area down there. But then, as Jesus is going back up, he goes through Samaria. Samaria is one of those places where, well, the people who lived there were sort of half Jewish and half pagan. They intermarried there. So, so for the real religious observing Jews, they considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds and you don't associate with them. You have nothing to do with them. But as Jesus is traveling home from Jerusalem in Samaria, he meets this woman who comes by a well to draw water and strikes up a conversation and it ends up being very engaging. And, and it turns out that Jesus actually spends a couple of days there. He doesn't keep traveling, but he stays in Samaria with this woman. And then the whole village kind of welcomes Jesus and his disciples in. So he has a couple of days in Samaria where normally Jewish people don't stay and don't associate with those people. But Jesus does that. And from there, he continues his journey back up to Galilee, Nazareth, Cana, Capernaum, the place where he's from. So that's, that's sort of how this story plays out. From the time when Jesus did the miracle at Cana, turning water into wine, to where we see it picking up today. Okay? So, with that, let's bring it to the second miracle Jesus does. Once again, back in the small village of Cana, where the first miracle happened. This is what we read. From John chapter 4, I'm beginning at verse 43. After two days, he left for Galilee. That's picking up from where he was in Samaria. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen that, that he had done what he had done in Jerusalem at Passover, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. 
when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming to, from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're back up in Galilee. And, and we saw a little bit of this last week with Cana and where Jesus performed those miracles and how that worked out. Cana, remember, is in the hill country. It's up there, and Nazareth is just below that. So these are two small villages that are very close together. They're small. They're in the hill country. We meet today this royal official who comes from Capernaum, which is by the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum lies along the trade route. So because it's a fishing village, it's right on the Sea of Galilee. It's a larger town. Because it's a trade route, people are traveling through there. It's a larger town much larger than Cana or Nazareth would have been. But as that all plays out, it's anywhere from 16 to 19 miles distance from Capernaum to Cana. So when this royal official comes to find Jesus, that's how far he comes. And you know, we're, we're not sure exactly where the road's all plotted out. So it's roughly 16 to 19 miles, something in there. And rem remember, they had to walk that there was not a transit system, no cars, nothing like that. So he had to walk somewhere even closer to 20 miles to find Jesus and asks Jesus, come back to Capernaum with me. Walk that route with me to come back again to do this thing to heal his son. That, that's the setting that we see here in this story as we're coming at it, okay? So how does this play out then? We remember something that we started with last week in, in picking up the story of Jesus, that as he performs this first miracle that he does, that it's, it's something that is intended for the people who see it to, to believe in Jesus. So we saw last week that the, the miracle where water turned into wine, only a few people saw it, right? Only the disciples knew and the servants who were filling the water jugs. Those were the only people who knew. But they saw it and they believed. Nobody else in town picked up anything at that time. At that moment, they didn't know. But we began to see in that story then of how John is using these miracles of Jesus to point our attention towards believing in Jesus. Because that seems to be the reaction that he's after. That when Jesus does this, the reaction is to believe in Jesus. He's after faith in that. So now we find ourselves once again in Cana, the same village where he was before. And now it's a little bit different. It, it's different because, well, on the one hand, John tells us the people all welcomed him back there, but for the wrong reasons. 
Right? You, you pick up on that right away. Because John includes in verse 44 this, this statement in parentheses that he was a prophet without honor in his own country. John tells us a little bit in what Jesus says that his first response to, to this official in verse 48 is, unless you people see signs and wonders, you're never going to believe. And, and the you that Jesus uses there is, is a plural. He's not just talking to the royal official. He's talking to everybody. You people, all of you, always looking for the signs and the miracles and the wonders, but you won't believe without it. That's sort of this tension, a tension that is created when Jesus comes back to Cana that John wants to set up for us. He wants us to see that, recognize that. All right, they welcome him back, but for the wrong reasons, not the way that Jesus would intend for it to go. Maybe think of it this way, that every now and then you hear these stories of, of a... Um, of someone who becomes this phenomenal star athlete who comes from humble beginnings, right? From, from a small town somewhere or grew up in um, housing projects or something like that. And then, for whatever reason, because this is a superstar athlete, makes it big, goes to the big time, gets the big contract, is suddenly making millions upon millions of dollars and and when this star athlete returns and visits back home again, where this person grows up, now, now all the people who knew that person growing up, you know, the kid next door, the one down the block, they all see this person a little bit differently now, don't they? It's not quite the same anymore, is it? All right, maybe there were childhood friends there who, you know what, hey, good to see you back in town. Maybe we can hang out sometime, but, but it's different. It's different because now all those people from this small, poor town know that, hey, this one guy is now a multimillionaire. He's got more resources than we would ever know or dream of. And maybe some of those friends from childhood are coming with different ideas in mind, different motives. Maybe they want something a little bit different out of this athlete now, knowing that he's got the resources to maybe be the ticket to the big life on the coattails of his celebrity and his resources. So maybe that's, maybe that's a little bit of a feel that we catch in this. All right, Jesus is from this area, Nazareth, Cana. People would have known him as a child growing up. But now they see him differently. Because even though this is only the second miracle that John gives us with detail, we know that Jesus has been doing other signs and miracles, even though John doesn't tell us what they are. We know this because we pick up from the stories in the chapters between here that Jesus is getting a following. People are coming to him. He's becoming popular. So everyone's coming to Jesus, and they know about all these things that he's done. And so within this then, Jesus comes back to the same town where that first miracle he did was kind of undercover. But now people know. They know, hey, it's that guy. You remember the kid who grew up in that house at the corner. Have you heard about the things that he's done? Have you heard about what he can do? Do you think of maybe we can get in on some of that? Maybe there's something for us in this. 
Now, maybe this is speculation, because the Bible doesn't say one way or the other, but, but I can't help but wonder if in the time between these events that maybe the people in town pieced together that whole wedding water-to-wine thing. All right, maybe when they first heard about it, they thought, oh, no way, whatever, that doesn't happen. Then they start hearing these other stories. Oh, so he can do stuff like that. So these things do have, so it was him. I wonder, I wonder if he comes back into town now and all the people now know. So Jesus, that thing you did that we didn't realize you did, can you do that again? What else can you do? What else do you have for us? I know, that's all speculative. John doesn't give us a clue one way or the other. But John does give us a clue that they welcome him back for the wrong reasons. For the wrong reasons. So, Jesus is back in this town again, and there's tension. Tension in his connecting with the people there. And into that story walks someone new. A royal official a person who has some kind of power or influence or prestige, someone of importance. Someone who would have been a royal official likely worked for King Herod. This would be Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great. Maybe you remember Herod the Great because it was Herod the Great who was visited by the Magi back in the Christmas story. It was Herod the Great who became so paranoid and so jealous that he ordered the murder of all the young boys in Bethlehem because he was so paranoid about Jesus coming to take his place. That was Herod the Great, who was kind of a ruthless guy. His son, Herod Antipas, takes over and is not quite as ruthless, but still sort of this um, puppet regime of the Roman Empire. Not a legitimate king of Israel, but just put in place by the people in power in Rome. So this royal official likely works for Herod, and is a person of power in that region of Galilee that's around there, and lives in Capernaum because it's the largest town in Galilee. But this royal official has a problem. His son is sick. Not a grown son, but the Greek language there is little child. So his toddler son is sick, and we get the feeling from from how it's put together in the text here that it's, it's the kind of sickness that you don't recover from, that sooner or later... It's the kind of fever from which this little child will die. So this royal official is desperate for his son, for his family. He hears that Jesus is back in the area. He's heard as well as the other people all the things that Jesus has done and can do. And so Jesus go, or this royal official goes to seek Jesus out, to find him in Cana. That's where we pick up on this story then. That this is someone who comes. And then the official has this conversation with Jesus. We don't know how it begins. All John tells us is he begs him. But where it goes from there that John does record for us comes a little more harshly. The official actually gives Jesus an order. He says, come down before my child dies. How we read it in our biblical text. Come down, I mean, that's just a uh, reference to the different elevations, right? Cana was a village in the hill country. Capernaum was by the seashore. So come down from this village down to Capernaum. 
And even though in our English Bibles, maybe it comes, uh, uh, maybe you read it a little more softly, like it's still a, a request or a petition, that's not what the language here is about. Right? The, the way that this comes in Greek, it's a command. This royal official, I mean, whatever that begging was about to do that, he's had enough and he says, you know what? I'm putting down the orders now. Jesus, let's go. We're going. You will do this for me. Come to Capernaum and heal my son. That's the way this request comes. As a command. As an order. I, now, I guess I suppose this is not all that surprising because this is a royal official who would have been used to giving orders, right? This is the kind of person who would give commands all day long and expect people to do what he commanded. That was his job. That's what he did. And people listened. They obeyed. So maybe not entirely out of the ordinary that someone with that kind of power would come and say, Jesus, let's go. I got something for you to do. We're going. But look how the response comes, though. Jesus responds to this command with a command of his own. He gives an order back to this official. And he says, go. Your child will live. And here again, it, it's, it's not a petition or a request, but the way the Greek language works on this, this is still just as harsh of a command. It's not go as in, you are dismissed now, or you may be on your way, or, you know, go ahead, it's all right. No, it's a command in the sense of, go away. Go back to where you came from. Get out of here. That's the language that Jesus is giving back to him. So this official comes and he says, Jesus, I got a command for you. Let's go. Come on. You're coming with me. And Jesus says, get out of here. Go. Uh, read it with that kind of language, right? That's what's happening here. This budding together of commands that go that way. But now, look at this. Now this official has to make a choice. Because Jesus has done something in the way this sets up, hasn't he? Jesus has placed himself in the middle of this royal official and his sick and dying child with an entire village standing there being witness to what's happening, what the event is about. And this royal official has to make a choice. A choice. Do I believe Jesus or do I reject Jesus? Right? Do, do I take him at his word and say, all right, I'm going to trust that Jesus is going to follow through on this? Or do I say, all right, fine then, forget it. I'm wasting my time. Do I use my royal authority to say, you know what? Put the guy in chains and make him come. Do I offer something else? I mean, this is someone who had resources. Give the bribe. What, what does the transaction need to be here? What do I need to give you for this to take place? But Jesus sets up this story for us to see and for all the people of that village to see where now this royal official is stuck with a choice. What do I do? Do I believe it or do I reject? I suppose there were a few other options that maybe we don't even consider. Maybe that royal official could have said, all right, here's how it's going to go. I'm going to get my fastest messenger and you run back as fast as you can. Find this out. I mean, he said my child will live, but... You know, I'm not letting Jesus out of my sight till I can verify that this has happened. 
I don't want him scooting off to some other village and then I lose track of him. So go figure it out. If it's all true, then good. I'm on my way. I mean, there may have been options like that, but that doesn't happen. The official makes a choice. I'm going to believe Jesus. Even though I have no guarantee of knowing for certain how this is going to play out, how it's going to turn out in the end. I don't have the verification for that, but Jesus has left me in a spot where I don't have a choice about that. I either need to believe him or reject him. It's as though Jesus sets up the story that way on purpose now, isn't it? To show us something. To show us that, you know what, I mean, this is the point of the entire story. This is the point of this miracle as John brings it to us, is to bring that question straight in front of us into our world today yet too, right? So how do you respond to Jesus in moments when God may not be doing exactly what it is that you expect God to do? Not that we give orders or commands to God, but let's be honest, all right? We hold some expectations of God, don't we? We hold expectations of things that we desire God to do for us. And in moments when life does not go the way we expected it to go, God is not doing what I expected God to do, we find ourselves facing that same choice, don't we? Will I believe in Jesus even though I don't know for certain what that next step will be. Even when God is not doing what I've expected God to do, will I believe or do I reject? John is putting this story square in front of us yet today, isn't he? With those same questions. That even though Jesus responds to this story with compassion, with mercy, I mean, he does heal this official son. His son does live. That Jesus shows and he demonstrates that, you know what? He has got the power to do it and he's got the compassion to do it. But the way that Jesus does it brings faith and belief into the middle because that's what Jesus is after. Even though he is a God of compassion and mercy and grace, that God comes to us with compassion and mercy and grace in a way that always creates an opportunity to believe and step in faith. And we see that yet today. As that story plays out then, John puts that in his gospel as a way of pointing forward, doesn't he? that he's illustrating something here that brings us to that event in the week of Jesus' betrayal and suffering and crucifixion and resurrection in a way of reminding us that even though we live in a world where God does not always do what we expect or desire for him to do, that he still creates opportunities in our relationship with him to believe, to trust, to step in faith. Let's pray together. God, 
Thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, as we read this story, yes, it's a reminder to us today that, all right, we hold expectations that maybe like this royal official, we have found ourselves in places where we have tried to give commands of what it is we want and desire you to do. But Lord, may we, in reading this story, recognize that you work in our lives in ways that always place opportunities before us to believe, to step in faith, to come to you with your mercy, your love, your compassion in ways that build our faith. So we pray that you do that with us this morning. That, uh, that when light may seem overwhelming and sweeping over us, that we may see that opportunity to step in faith come from that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.